if I'm a new developer coming to the space, I look at Ethereum, I look at Solana, I look at Ethereum and I see ten different names: Arbitrum, Optimism, Polygon, Starknet, zk Sync, blah 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 blah. What the fuck am I gonna do with these? Di- Which one do I pick? Now, if I look at Solana, it's one chain and it's cheaper and faster. Why not just pick that? That's the the best argument I can think of as a developer for Solana. It's really that simple. This episode is brought to you by Das London, Blockworks' number one institutional crypto conference, where all the top institutions and people in crypto are going to be this March in London. What's becoming maybe the crypto hub of the world? I have a link in the show notes where you can learn more, and also a discount code that will get you twenty percent off. So click the link, find out more, and I'll see you there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we are joined by Chow Wang, who is the co-founder of Alliance Dow. Chow, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pumped to have you. So if you don't know Alliance Dow, it's technically like the Y Combinator of Web3. And if you don't know what Y Combinator is, I don't know what you're doing. But essentially, it's an accelerator for startups. So Chow is looking at thousands of applications every year. I think you've accelerated over 200 startups at this point, And I want to get into some of the details of Alliance Dow. But I know through looking at all those applications, you said that this next year, you see two massive opportunities. And that's real world assets and payments. So I want to know, like, you know, what makes you say that? Yeah, um, it's uh, it's an idea we've been uh, developing for quite some time. The the principal observation is that um, you know it's been 15 years uh, since the birth of Bitcoin. There's now even in the bear market 1.5 trillion dollars of uh, wealth that's stored on chain, and then you have all these people around the world that that hold all this wealth, and the question is, uh, what do they do with it, right? Well, one thing they've been doing for the last 15 years is to ape into shitcoins. Um, uh, friend and friend tech keys and, you know, new york C20s and NFTs, all that stuff. But um, at some point, um, all these assets are, depending on, on what time horizon you look at, are, are fairly correlated with, with each other. So they need uncorrelated source of either yield or returns. Um and that's the first idea, which is uh, RWAs, because RWAs, uh, including, I'm, I'm, I'm using the broadest sense of the word, right? So RWAs can include stocks, bonds, uh, precious metals, commodities, so on, so real estate, so on, so forth. All these assets, historically, for the last few hundred years, um, have been fairly uncorrelated with each other, and certainly from for for the most part, uncorrelated from crypto, except for during times when Jerome Powell starts speaking and stuff like that. But for the most part, they're uncorrelated. And crypto people, the crypto natives, they want to do something with their wealth. And the first thing they want to do is to diversify their wealth into potentially these real-world assets. So that's the f- first opportunity. And the second opportunity is the other... Th- well, the, again, the same question. What can they do with that $1.5 trillion of on-chain wealth? Well, they can pay each other. They can pay people for stuff. They can pay for real things, um, day-to-day goods. They can pay their friends. They can pay their vendors, their employees, et cetera, et cetera. So, and that's the second idea is payment. Makes sense. On the real-world asset side, I know you said stablecoins is part of that. So I would think that's probably the first real-world asset that's already taken off and is going to continue to do so. Maybe T-bills would be next. Is liquidity a huge part of this? Because right now, like if you think about real estate, for example, you have different houses or real estate buildings you can invest in, but there's no liquidity there because they're not fungible. Like where does this play into that and like what opportunities would be available? Um, liquidity plays a big role. Um, and, and this is um, one of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of the uh, very idea of the, the, the RWN narrative. I, I, I've called it a fake narrative in the past and, and that's because it, it makes people lazy. Like people just get lazy and think everything can be tokenized and, and will just work on chain. Well, at some point, maybe in two, three decades, that will be the case. But in the short term, we have to think critically about what assets do people actually want on chain. Well, the first one we've had on chain that people really want is stablecoins. And if I re- recall correctly, from maybe six to seven years ago, stablecoins solved a really uh, compelling problem, which is not a problem that people tend to think of. But it was a, the problem of cross-exchange arbitrage. So the first time I saw USDT was on Poloniex, that 
that exchange that was later acquired by by his ex excellency um, Justin. Um, but 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 back then, uh, Poloniex was uh, the leading in 2016 was the leading uh, alts exchange, and um, people wanted to trade Poloniex along uh, you know arbitrage between the prices on Poloniex and the prices elsewhere. Um, before stablecoins, what they did was they had to use the fiat rails. They have to like buy an asset here or sell sell a crypto asset on one exchange and then uh, into fiat and then move the fiat to another exchange via the, the fiat rail, the traditional uh, um, TradFi rails. And that is ridiculously slow and, and expensive. And so stablecoins came along, notably uh, USDT, and that just solved it, like instant settlement and nearly free settlement. And people love that. And But if you really think about it, the cross-chain arbitrage is such a, it feels like an extremely inconsequential use case, but it is what people wanted at that time. And so the question I, I, I like people to, to think about is, okay, you want to tokenize real estate, fine, but who wants that? And why people, do people want that? Mike, I don't have a strong opinion on, on real estate, by the way. But my current view is, uh, tokenizing individual properties does not feel like compelling enough for people. Because if you think about the people who actually want tokenized properties or, or real estate, right? Let's say you, you tokenize real estate in, in, in the US. Who wants that? Well, maybe it's people in the emerging market that wants a higher quality asset. Maybe it's some on-chain crypto native organizations that need to uh, diversify their, their treasury. But do they really want to own a one individual property and spend like 500k on it? I think for the most part, the answer is no. That's that's my guess. So what they want instead, maybe, is a basket of properties. So now, if you tokenize a back, basket of properties, that becomes really interesting. So basically, you can think in TradFi, it's called a REIT, and and these REITs, uh, they are basically like ETFs, and they trade. Uh, uh, they trade very well. They, they trade uh, very. Uh, they have a lot of liquidity on, on the traditional like exchanges like Nasdaq and NYC. Um, so liquidity with a lot of liquidity and with enough diversification, people maybe maybe people want that kind of asset. Uh, so that's my current view, but could change anytime. Yeah, and I know, I know neither of us are professionals on like the real estate market and REITs, et cetera. But I do know, for example, like I'm from Arkansas. If I could invest somehow in a REIT that covered Arkansas real estate or at least Northwest Arkansas, I would definitely do it. I assume that there's no ETF for that. For one, um, it's probably really expensive to put together. And two, it's more of a niche investor set because you probably don't have people around the world trying to invest in Northwest Arkansas, right? And I guess the question is, how can crypto help enable that, do you think? Because to me, it's like, well, why don't they just do this in a centralized manner? Like, Or can crypto somehow cut costs or is it just you can reach more of that niche audience. Yeah, um, before even cutting costs, there is an even more compelling reason to tokenize some real-world assets, including a basket of properties, which is access. That The vast majority of people in the world don't have access to real estate in Arkansas, right? So, so before even discussing costs, before even solving costs, we, we've, we've solved access. Because ultimately, crypto is this global distributed ledger that everyone can access and can do stuff. So access is actually the first question. Now, cost, I'm, again, I'm not really sure. Um, there, there is a, I think there, there are certain asset classes for, for which cost might become interesting. So, uh, for example, uh, we've spoken with uh, a few startups that are operating in the Southeast Asia. And they're tokenizing commercial very short-term commercial debt. Um, it, it's so so from an accounting point of, point of view, the, the the debt is so short-term that it doesn't even appear on accounting statements. Uh, they just call it receipts. So it's very short-term, thirty-day kind of loans that companies borrow uh, to uh, pay for their working capital needs. And so um, this type of loans in the Southeast Asia, it's uh, it's very hard for the small and medium businesses to get loans on this on this uh, stuff because uh, their default risk is fairly high, and the banking system might not be as developed as let's say in the U.S. or whatever. Again, I'm not an expert. I'm just uh, you know sharing with you what I've learned. Now, um, if these SMEs cannot get loans locally from their local bank. Well, what can they do? They can try to 
harness the DGEN energy on chain and, and borrow and borrow money from, from on chain DGENs. And internally we call this um, well, we don't call this it's 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 called adverse selection. So adverse selection means um, basically the <laughs> arguably the on-chain DGENs are the least informed um, uh, type of lenders, let's say, because they're, they're, they don't have the same resources or, or, or information that the banks have. So they get adversely selected in the sense that they get the deals that the others don't want. So in this case, they get the deals of lending money to these SMEs. And they don't care because they don't have as much information. So they're more willing to, to lend to these SMEs. Um, so this is one place where Cost actually matters. Going back to the original question, cost actually matters because um, if these SMEs were to borrow from the banks, the banks would charge them a lot of interest rate because they understand the risks. But the on-chain DGENs, they get adversely selected, so they don't require as high of a uh, high interest rate. And by the way, this happened with Genesis and FTX last year. The last year, uh, at this time, exactly a year ago, now it's November 4th, Actually, I think I think it might have been in November 14th last year, but I don't know exactly one year ago. The interest rate, the the prevailing interest rate uh, among the OTC desks uh, in crypto was around, uh, call eight percent. Depending, of course, you add a few percentages depending on your default risk. But eight percent is someone you lend to, um, a, a an entity with a very supposedly very low, uh. Default risk in that case was FTX, and they blew up, and then that was the the, the epitome of adverse selection. All the landers got adversely selected. Anyway, uh, just uh, worst kind. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going on a detour. No, that's great. No, I love uh, the DGEN energy, and it is funny that crypto in some ways feels like monopoly money to many, right? When you see it in your wallet, and and you've seen that even when you went from like cash to credit and debit cards, that's like a form of monopoly money. And then you get into into crypto, and you see your wallet, and that's even like a greater abstracted form of monopoly money. And you have these DGENs on chain uh, that is great for capital formation. So I 100% agree with that. And you know that I'm not ready to go down the AI rabbit hole. I know you have a lot of thoughts there, but it'll be interesting seeing that, how that could combine with legal and making legal costs a lot lower. And then using crypto and like modules, for example, like um, it would be like compounds, compounds governance module and how you can reuse that, that that would actually bring down costs a lot and that you could have things like we're talking about real estate here, real estate baskets. You might not only increase access, but also cost just through bringing like the, the confluence of those technologies. Um, I, I'm curious on the payment side, do you think this is going to be like B2C or is it going to be consumer payments uh, like Solana right now? You have like Sling and Code, et cetera. That makes it really easy. Like me and you, it's like Venmo. Or do you see this on more of a B2B? Um. It, payment is extremely case by case, and, and I'll give you some hot takes. I think uh, the the very idea of uh, crypto Venmo is nonsensical to me. the The idea of people based in the U.S. paying each other via an app using crypto, using some stablecoin, does not make any sense to me because Venmo is very good. What's the point of of using crypto to pay your friends for to, to share a, a dinner bill? That that does not make any sense to me. Um, the places where crypto payment can actually work, the most obvious one for, for me is cross border payment, and we've talked about this for fifteen years since the very early days of Bitcoin. You you, you saw people on BitcoinTalk.org talk about. Um, uh, cross-border payment, but it hasn't happened. And the question is why? I think that the question as to why cross-border payment hasn't really happened um, is just a matter of timing. Uh, and I think there are, there are two very big reasons why it was too early. One, stablecoins didn't exist five years ago, or stablecoins didn't have as much of a critical mass as it does today. Five years ago, so when you don't have that many people holding stablecoins, they can't even pay. They have nothing to pay each other for. And the second, well, uh, related to that, the, the reason why stablecoin is so important is because Bitcoin is a very volatile asset. So if you think about actually when you do remittance from one country to another, you let's say you send money from the U.S. to Nigeria, you 
swap US dollar to Bitcoin and then Bitcoin to Nigerian local currency. That's two transactions. Two, there is two transactions where you have to pay a spread and an exchange cost. But instead of using Bitcoin, if you use stablecoin, USDC or USDT, what you're actually really doing is you convert your US dollar to USDC via circle. That transaction is free. Then the second transaction, you convert USDC into the local currency. So you actually remove one of the two uh, transactions where you have to pay a spread. So USDC is actually superior to Bitcoin in this regard uh, when you send money from the US to, to elsewhere. And of course, much, much faster settlement because Bitcoin is like one, uh, one hour, uh, whereas stablecoin is, you know, whatever the, the, uh, the layer one settlement is, the settlement time is. Um, so um, stablecoin is the first reason why things might, be, might have been too early. Uh, the second reason was that uh, there was no fiat on off-ramp many years ago across many emerging economies around the world. But now they are spinning up everywhere. Like, by the way, did you see the uh, chain analysis report from couple uh, yesterday? Uh, a lot of people sh shared it around. It's a very good report. Uh, it's like 80 pages or something, lots of data. But basically, they analyzed the, the flow of crypto across like pretty much every major country around the world. And um, the top five countries when it comes to crypto adoption adjusted by uh, purchasing power. Uh, if I remember correctly, number one is India. Number two is Nigeria. Uh, number three is Vietnam. Number four is Ukraine. And number five is uh, United States. Yeah, wow. So, so four of the top five countries uh, are emerging markets, economies. And uh, crypto is, is, is happening in these countries. But many years ago, fiat on-off-ramp didn't exist. Today, they do everywhere. Uh, and and we, we are, we're in investing in several startups in, in this um, uh, area. Okay. But Chow, on that, how do you convince these users around the globe to use a decentralized protocol or product? Because I think a lot of these people right now probably use Binance, for example. So how, how are your teams thinking about that? Um, so a lot of them today use uh, Binance P2P. Um, the application that they would use for remittance would probably abstract away all the uh, crypto stuff. Like actually abstract away all the crypto stuff. Uh, like when you use a DeFi protocol, for example, you install a let's say um, a Phantom Wallet. You, you're a Solana guy, so you install a Phantom Wallet. You you do some stuff that's that's very crypto native. But when you send remittance from the U.S. to Nigeria, the experience, both from the sender's perspective and the receiver's perspective, you see nothing crypto about it. The sender will initiate a transaction from their bank account via ACH, and they're done. And then the receiver puts in their bank information in the app, and, the, and like pretty much instantly, they will get money in their bank account. They know nothing about crypto. But under the hood, a USDC transaction happened, and a fiat, a circle got involved. And then on the receiver end, uh, a fiat off-ramp happened as well uh, in Nigeria. So uh, complexity abstraction. Yeah, I think that's something you have to do. Even Sling on Solana, I don't. I think it's international, but they do partner with banks as well. So I'm not exactly sure. But they have Apple Pay to onboard, right? Like that onboarding and off ramp, like you were talking about, to me is so important, and that's why it's so big. If we can get people to be paid on chain, I just don't know how long that's going to take outside of something like gaming or Deepin. Um, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but I do because we we're talking about real world assets. What do you think about Deepin? Um. And, and one tweet that you had, <laughs> that's funny because I'm actually interviewing Paul tomorrow from Teleport. Uh, I think this was in your article about like why products fell in crypto. And you said like a lot of times when you have someone that comes out of Web2, uh, they think of like, what, what have I done here that I can bring to crypto? And you use Uber on chain and Teleport is actually essentially Uber on chain. So yeah, I'm just curious, maybe you could address that and then maybe just like Deepin. Um. Deepin, um, Deepin is not really putting a whole... Web2 product on-chain. Uh, the only thing it, it really puts on-chain is um, 
the 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 harnessing degen energy part. Coordination, you could say. <laughs> That's a better way to say it, right? <laughs> it's coordination. coordination, yes. Um <laughs> And that's what makes uh, Deepin so powerful. Um, Kyle, Kyle Samani uh, uh, tweeted about this the other day. I thought it was interesting because Kyle, Kyle watched our podcast, me and Imran, on, on speculation, in which we said, we didn't take a moral position, but we said speculation is, is, uh, is, is one of the very few things that has product market fit in crypto. And Kyle... Uh, confidentially told me that uh, he he was very pissed when when you, when you watched the the episode. I was like, "Fuck you guys!" You know, speculation doesn't make any sense. I hate speculation. And then second day, he tweeted. He made that tweet and he said, "Speculation actually makes sense because um, in deep end, speculation is what bootstraps the, the whole network." And 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 he's right. Um, speculation is a, a very powerful. Is the most powerful um, thing in in deep end. Is what makes Depend works. Strong opinions loosely held there. Chow, yeah. you actually had a quote. Um, I think he said, when people talk about that crypto needs to move from speculative phase to utility is the most midwit phrase I've ever heard. Is this yeah. what you're talking about right now? Yeah, exactly. I, I think so. <laughs> uh, so. So I was chatting with Kyle this, this morning. I'll, I'll share what, what I said again, which is speculation. A few months ago, I realized that speculation is the most contrarian idea among VCs, and yet it's the most consensus idea among crypto users. For some reason, the, the, the VCs and the users are, now just on, are, are just not on the same page. They're not, they're, they don't live in the same dimension. The, the, all users do on-chain is speculation, and yet I don't understand why VCs hate the idea of speculation. And, and, and for me, so back to that, that, that original uh, that, that tweet that I, that I made the other day, that, that um, moving from the idea of moving from speculation to utility is, is midwit. S- speculation is utility. It's like for users, for crypto users today, they derive utility from speculation. And speculation means two things. One, they may be able to make, make money. And, and two, if they don't make money, they, are, they at least get the, the dopamine hit, which is also valuable. It, it's a utility. So um, I'm, I'm all for speculative apps. Yeah. It's also community. Like I, I used to watch sports, college football, NFL, all of that all the time. And I really don't anymore. Um, and my friends used to somewhat, like you had Red Zone come out, it became a big deal. But now it's sports betting. And you can actually do that legally in New York, but my friends do it everywhere. And uh, now that I get older, you don't see your friends all the time. But we have a group text and they text all day, every day, because they're betting on every single game that they care nothing about, right? They don't care about it at all. But honestly, they're just doing it. One, it's a little bit, you get that dopamine rush. But two, it's like, it actually brings my friends together. And I feel yes. like I'm missing out. I feel like I'm missing out. <laughs> Hundred percent. Like crypto is actually more entertainment. It's more social than actually about making money. Uh, at least for me, it's it's as as much about the entertainment as it is about money. What is your favorite non-speculative use case outside of payments? Is there, there any? Is there any non, non-speculative? Well, I mean, non-speculative is payment, but you could argue that most payment apps today are speculative, are fundamentally speculative. Because if you think about what what are people doing with USDC, right? Uh, the people in Argentina, uh, in, in in many countries in Africa, they want to get, they want to receive remittance in in USDC because they think their own currency will go down in value against the US dollar. That fundamentally is speculative. Um, aside from that, um, I've, I've used Forecaster quite a bit. I think Forecaster is purely non-speculative, I think, for now at least. Uh, I think they recently integrated with Zora. Zora is, is pure speculation. I don't care what people say, but, but Zora is speculation. So, but the idea of um, just messaging uh, or, or uh, you know, to, to a big audience on Forecaster is, is non-speculative and it's it's probably the only one I can think of for now. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, like you said, speculation is a major part of crypto. <laughs> Quick break to tell you about an upcoming event I promise you don't want to miss. It's BlockWorks' biggest and best institutional conference called Das London. It's a two-day event happening in London this March. We're going to have over 700 institutions, 130 speakers, and a couple thousand of us all under one roof. Crypto is in a position for the first time to actually onboard these institutions, and they're showing up. We have companies from BlackRock to Visa launching real products in the space. We have the real-world asset narrative taking off. We have things like payments that have been exponentially growing. And then we have things like DeepEnd happening in the Solana ecosystem. There's a ton of capital right now in this institutional space is going to be coming on chain. It's going to completely change the industry. Whether you are an institution or you're a retail user or you just want to learn more about what's going on in the space, this conference is for you. You're going to be able to meet some of the best and smartest people in the space. The speaker lineup is absolutely incredible and you'll get to hang out with me. But the best part is you actually get 20% off your ticket if you use Lightspeed 20 when checking out. That's Lightspeed 20. I put a link in the show notes. Um, I recommend buying this today because one, you'll forget about it. Two, these ticket prices go up every single month. So anyways, I hope to see you there. Now, let's get back to the show. So being at Alliance DAO, you know, you're looking at all these applications all the time. Um, you're talking to developers. And I think you said the most important thing to look at when like evaluating crypto or like especially from an investor's point of view is where the where are the developers going? So I'm curious, what does that look like today? And maybe how has it shifted even over the last year and during this bear market? Um, so where things are today is the top four uh Excluding Ethereum mainnet, because it's there, there's some uh, it, it's it's hard to to get the methodology right if you count Ethereum. So so anyway, just ignore Ethereum. The top four are in no particular order: Optimism, Arbitrum, Polygon, Solana. So Solana has always been in the top four, even in the the in the aftermath of the FTX crash exactly a year ago. And this was exactly why I was, bear, I was bullish on Solana at the pickle bottom a year ago. Uh, well, there, there's a couple other reasons, but this, is one, this was one of the main reasons. Um, Solana dropped a little bit after FTX, and it's understandable. A lot of people, a lot of builders pivoted away from Solana to Ethereum Layer 2s in a few months after uh, the crash, but then Solana came back again uh, a few months later, and I don't even know if if my data is st- statistically significant enough to to say Solana did drop to number three or number four from number two. So, but anyway, Solana has always been in the top five. And uh, Chow's not just saying that. You have a tweet in November two thousand twenty two when FTX was imploding, and you said like essentially like Solana. Everyone thinks Solana is dead. It's not dead. And then I've heard you throughout podcasts and tweeting about it. And um, even in July, you said like you only needed to know two things to know that Solana wasn't going anywhere: the developer community and their passion that they have, and also the low fees. And you're like, if you saw those two things, it's obvious. And that was July, and obviously like the price, the adoption, everything's been catching on a lot lately. So um, yeah, you've definitely been proven right. Do you think that it's reached mainstream at this point, where you actually have new builders talking about Solana again? Because I'm going to assume they did fall off for a bit. New builders. Um... There aren't that many, so just anecdotally, when I when I when I review our applications, like people who apply to our program, uh, interestingly, and this is not unique to Solana, uh, but the vast majority of applicants are crypto natives. They've been in this space for a long time since the bear market, uh, since the, the the beginning of the bear market. Um, in the bull market two years ago, uh, the vast majority of new applicants are new founders, are new bu- builders who are new to crypto. So today, by the way, I, I just I feel a lot more comfortable uh, and, and less stressed when I speak to founders who have been in the space for a long time because I know they've been they're really in it for the tech and for the money, of course. But not they're in it not just for the money, but also for the tech. Um, so uh, new builders, I don't see that yet. But I think if Solana goes back to all time high or Bitcoin goes back to all time high. We'll see new builders, and you see that in the Electric Capital report, uh, the Dev report, Developer Activity report. That the developer activity is so is basically the price of Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, you've said price leads everything. Can you explain that. Yeah, price leads developer activity. Price leads um, VC sentiment. So, for example, when uh, uh, FTX crashed. Uh, uh, the vast majority of VCs di- didn't want to touch Solana projects. And in fact, many of them told their existing Solana projects to, to pivot away from Solana. Um, 
And then all of a sudden in the last few months, Solana went up like what, three, four, five X. And then um, I haven't talked to the VCs yet, but I, I think they've, I I wouldn't be surprised if they, they've changed their mind. Um, so price leads sentiment, VC sentiment. Price also leads, obviously, TVL. Part of that is by definition because some of the TVL is denominated in the native currency of Sol or, or ETH, right? So if the price of Sol and ETH go, goes up, the TVL goes up by definition. But there's also a reflexive component where price goes up, sometimes uh, uh, yields go up, uh, volatility goes up, so people would uh, use the on-chain, like let's say PERP protocols more. By the way, we've seen that recently with uh, Jupiter. Uh, they, they really crushed it. Um, and so price going up leads to more on-chain trading. And so these are the main th the three main areas of, of uh, places that are lagging prices. But when I say lagging, I don't mean like, oh, price goes up, then these things go up. Obviously, there is a self-reinforcing component as well. If more developers come in, you know, people feel more bullish and then price goes up. So it's like self-reinforcing. But by and large, I would argue that price leads the other three rather than the other way around. I completely agree with that. And I bet the product you were talking about there that um, was told not to build on Solana was Tensor. Is that right? Tensor was one of them, but there are so many. Like I can, Marius uh, is the other one. In the uh, Hubble the protocol. Hubble protocol. Yeah. Um, basically, all, all, our Solana, all the Solana projects we invested in, they, they, they had people telling them to pivot. Yeah. It's funny, as, as long as the ecosystem doesn't die and there's a strong community there that you think is going to come back, it's actually good to me that Solana became like an underdog again because for a while it became the VC chain that like nobody, I don't know. It wasn't attractive even to me who was in the, in the ecosystem just because I was like, I don't know, the VC chain, that's like antithetical to crypto. But now that it's gone through the FTX implosion, you see the passion of the builders, you see the tech getting adopted. It's actually been a lot more fun. It's kind of more fun to root for the underdog. And not only the underdog, it's almost doing the opposite of what most of crypto is doing, which is like the modular approach is taking like the global state so i i just think that's really attractive to not only like builders but users as well yeah agreed what you said just what you just said there is the exact argument i made when ftx collapsed i said that the fact that ftx collapsed if anything is positive for solana like a really bad actor going away how do you see that as a bad thing like it's a good thing um but anyway um 100%. You mentioned Jupiter, um, and you had a tweet mentioning Jupiter. You know, they launched a Perps product. They announced it at Breakpoint, and I'm not sure what it's doing today, but it surpassed Drift, which was the leading Perps protocol on Solana in volume. I think that might be somewhat tied to the fact that Jupiter is going to have an airdrop, and maybe people people think if they do volume, they'll get tied to that. But I'm curious, yeah, what do you think about that, and also just like vertical and horizontal integration happening in DeFi, which we've seen in Ethereum, but not really happened on Solana yet. Yeah. Um... So the horizontal integration is um, is uh, an interesting topic. So what happened was Jupiter started off. By the way, for, for those who don't know, they were used to be called uh, Mercurial, which was like the curve, the stablecoin swap on, on Solana. Uh, it didn't work really well, and then they built a an aggregator of DEXs on Solana, and that's called Jupiter. Um, and they did really well. They basically owned the entire market like 70, 80% market share. All the trading, 70 to 80% of trading on Solana, spot trading on Solana, um, goes through Jupiter, Jupiter's uh, aggregator. So they're like the, the one inch or however you want to call it of Solana. And then recently they launched the, the PERP protocol. So I just call it going horizontal. By going horizontal, I mean you, you build a product, you do really well, you dominate that particular market, and then you want to go horizontal and compete with other DeFi applications. And that's what that's what they did. They they're starting to compete with uh, Drift. Now, um, this is interesting because uh, this has happened a lot on, on Ethereum, and the the prime example I can think of is uh, Uniswap. So Uniswap started started off as a, as a, an, an AMM, and recently in, in this last year alone, they they launched like two, three, four products to compete with, with others. They launched an NFT thing, and they launched a, a wallet, a mobile wallet. Uh, they launched their um, uh, intent-based solver system to, to compete with, uh, with the one-inch. <clears throat> um, 
So yeah, they're competing on every front. Um, but aside from Uniswap, that happens everywhere as well. Like you know, you see all these protocols like Aave, for example, launching their their own stablecoin. Uh, oh, by the way, Uniswap also competing with Curve. Uniswap take, has taken a lot of market share from from Curve when it comes to stablecoin swap as well. So uh, it's getting really, really cutthroat in Ethereum uh, DeFi ecosystem. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I don't know. I would like to see the numbers on their wallet, on the Uniswap wallet, how that's worked. I know this is probably back a year ago, but you've talked about, actually, you've been talking about this for years, about the like the wallet wars and essentially like being an aggregator in crypto and aggregation theory. Curious how you think that would play out here. Because like you said, Jupiter right now does over 60% of the volume in Solana, spot volume. So does that make them like a prime candidate to launch their own wallet? Like, do you think that's how it's going to be successful? Or what, what have your views changed on this like super app thesis? Thesis a year ago was that um, wallets they're ultimately the, the they ultimately own the the relationship with the end user because if you think about it when you use Uniswap, uh, Uniswap is not the thing that you as a user are interacting with. You are actually interacting with MetaMask. MetaMask owns Uniswap. MetaMask has so much bargaining power, and I came to that realization when uh, Uniswap uh, when uh, when sorry when uh, MetaMask. Uh, Build their uh, in-app in in-wallet swap function that made like two hundred million dollars that year, twenty twenty-one or something. That was ridiculous. Like people are actually willing to pay like twenty-five, thirty more basis point just for convenience. That's just how much bargaining power wallets have against the apps, and that's why Uniswap was not they they, they felt threatened and they wanted to, to own that by by launching a a, a mobile wallet. Um, so I've, I've held this idea for a very long time, but recently I, I have a slight change of mind, uh, when I noticed, um, the whole story around, um, Unibot and, and Maestro and independently, I talked to several Latin American teams that built wallets on top of WhatsApp. And that just got me to think maybe the browser extension may not be the end game for wallets, for desktop wallets. Because if you think about it, Telegram for Unibot, WhatsApp for the Latin American users, um, they might be, those might be the, the red interface for, for wallets. So basically Unibot, well, Unibot, like, okay, Unibot, the Unibot wallet is, is not um, self-custodial, they got hacked, et cetera, et cetera. But really you can build a self-custodial wallet within Telegram. Similar to Unibot, but but more actually self self custodial, more compliant, etc. And you can also build a wallet within WhatsApp. If you really think about it, maybe WhatsApp and Telegram are the right interfaces for crypto wallets because, and 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 those might end up winning because they already have so much distribution, billions of users. So I have a slight change of mind. I don't know how things will play out, but it's something I saw recently that I thought was pretty interesting. Mm. That is really interesting. It'll be interesting too to see like who wins that market. Will it be were they mobile first? Like you get the user locked in on mobile and then they just go to their browser from time to time. Obviously, if you're a professional trader, you're probably going to be on your PC most of the time, but mobile is just a growing sector. And you've seen this with Facebook to some extent. They've been trying to compete with like Apple and Google, aka like Android, um, but they don't have a form factor, aka they don't like have a phone and they've wanted like a hardware device so bad. And now AI could be that form factor for them, whether that's glasses or some other device that you put in. Um, and they want that because without that, you don't have like the direct connection to the user. You always have Apple or Google in your way. And crypto doesn't really have a new form factor because everything exists on something we already have. Like I was talking to somebody the other day in gaming, like we're talking about gaming, will it be big sector in crypto? And one reason it took off on your phone is because people had a phone and for the first time, you're like, oh, well, I have a phone. I might as well try out something new on here. And like, let's try games. Crypto doesn't really have a new thing. Like Everyone already has their phone. They have their PC. There's no new form factor. So yeah, I don't know what will be that controlling front end like you talk about. Maybe that'll be the, the chat apps is what it sounds like. Hmm. Curious to see how that plays out. It feels like everyone's going to try to launch a wallet. Do you think that's going to happen in 2024? I mean, everyone is everyone who has some product market fit is thinking of launching a wallet. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think many, it'll be one of those where everyone launches it, what, 99% die within like six months. Yeah, and, and and Telegram and, and WhatsApp might end up winning. <laughs> Do you think Apple would ever get in this game? Like when I say ever, like in the next five years? 
no idea maybe yeah yeah i mean that'd be huge if apple had a wallet i'd use it i'll say that so yeah <laughs> um okay i do love that that'll be a new thing your uh super app thesis part of that super app thesis i think comes in here is coinbase yeah. um so you're oh, a big yeah. fan of solana but you have talked about like there are two okay so you said two statements and maybe you can say if this has changed you yeah. said solana ethereum are the only two ecosystems i can say with 80 percent confidence will still be relevant in five years um but then you've also said which i kind of agree with you with that if there's two assets that people want to have broad exposure to crypto it's going to be coin aka coinbase and ease yes um so yeah yeah what do you think about that <sighs> coinbase is such a fantastic company from from an investment from an investment point of view, like if you want broad exposure to crypto, like a, some sort of index bet, Coinbase is second to none because they have so many different businesses that are doing well, and they made a number of really good decisions, product decisions in the last year or so that that you know make me think, hey, these guys really know what they're doing. I'll give you examples. Uh, well, so let's start with the businesses that are doing really well. Stablecoin is doing really well, um, and uh, especially when uh, Jerome Powell raised interest rates to almost six percent. <laughs> That's so. Coinbase is actually an anti-cyclical um, uh, business. Like they have two businesses that are um, hedging against each other. So they have the trading business, which is correlated with, you know, say the wider economy. Uh, the economy goes well. People are feel richer. They start speculating, etc. But if Jerome Powell starts raising interest rates. Everyone gets poorer, but then their stablecoin business makes a lot of money from the from the interest rate. So such a such a great um, hedge uh, for them internally. Um, so that that's that. And then they made a couple of really good decisions in the last year. First, first one obviously is Base, uh, the the layer two of, of Coinbase. Um, last time I checked, they already had like hundred million dollars worth of uh, TVL, and that's. Given that's despite the fact that Frantech has been um, losing uh, users or, or TVL in the last few months, uh, they're doing really well. And it, it makes total sense for them to launch a layer two. Um, but just last week, they launched their identity initiative. That to me is just huge. And I, people are not talking enough about it. I, I talked about this on our last, on, on my podcast, when we talked about Frantech, because the, the two are related. Um, because Frantech, if you really think about it, it's an uh, it's identity layer on top of um, Ethereum. Um, because what they managed to do is they managed to link your Twitter identity with your on-chain address. If they become successful enough, you all of a sudden have real on-chain identity. Um, and, and people have wanted this for years. And... Oh, oh, by the way, I, I'm going. I'm I'm going to go on a detour because on-chain identity is, is really really interesting because people have wanted it, wanted this for for years. There were so many startups wanting to build an on-chain identity startup, but they've all got it gotten it wrong because the way to bootstrap on-chain identity is not to build a startup dedicated to on-chain identity. It's to build a, an application that a lot of people use that eventually gets on-chain ident identity as a nice side benefit. So I'll, I'll give you an analogy. In Web2, you have email. Email today, when you, think, when you think of email today, it's your identity, your Web2 identity. When you log into websites, you use your email. Let's say, of, of course, you use Google and Facebook. But, but at some point, you use your email and, and password to log into websites. But when email first started, email did not think of itself as, as Web2 identity. It was a communication medium between people. It solved a real problem back then, which is communication uh, on the internet. And similarly, in Web3, in crypto, on-chain identity probably will work out that way. So the way to bootstrap on-chain identity is not to build for on-chain identity itself, is, but rather to build a Frantech kind of application to bootstrap that, that identity. Now, Let's tie this back to Coinbase because Coinbase has built an incredible exchange, crypto exchange for the last 15 years. And while doing this, they never thought of building a non-chain identity uh, layer for Ethereum. But instead, they were forced by government regulations to do KYC on their users. And now they have the KYC for like 100 million users. And they now link that to their base 
layer two. Just, just think how powerful that is. All of a sudden, you have 100 million KYC identity on chain. Wow, like imagine the amount, that the number of applications that can be built on top of that. So what I'm saying is, I think Coinbase has made a, a number of, of really, really good decision, decisions. And I'm, I'm really bullish on, on Coinbase. Yeah, so am I. I think that product's called Coinbase Credentials, um, which I think is really cool as well. You have to be a Coinbase customer to use it, which, like you said, they have 100 million users. They have a lot of users. Because um, my, my take on Base has been it's an incredible product, but it's going to be KYC'd. But I guess if you have credentials, you don't have to technically KYC the L2. You just can KYC every single application built on top of it. Um, I don't see how you could be a public company and operate an L2 sequencer. I just, I don't, I don't understand that. Like, how, what yeah, do you think? Like, I have no idea. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I think it's sweet. And it's kind of like an arbitrage opportunity right now. And this credentials gives them a path to KYC everything if they had to in some ways, or at least all the applications they support. Like maybe the sequencer will not process a transaction if it's not from an application that uses credentials. I'm just making this up, but I can see that happening. There, there's a lot of applications that cannot be built without KYC. So if you have a KYC chain, uh, it'll enable new applications. And what's cool about it, right, is it allows public and permissionless applications on the same layer. Because like used to, you had like Quorum from IBM and all these like enterprise chains that are like, we need to KYC our users or our validators. So they need to have their own chain. But with something like this credentials, you can actually say like only users that have this credential can interact with my app or like interact with this token. And Solana actually has the same thing coming in with Token 22, which is just like a token program. I mean, essentially like transfer hooks. It reminds me a little bit of Uniswap X's hooks. But it says like, before you make this transfer, before you interact with this contract, run this program. And one of that program could be, hey, if you don't have this credential, like if you're a fund and you have tokens on chain, but only people that are accredited investors can interact with it. Now, because of these hooks, you can actually do to do that. And that's what this allows on Coinbase essentially as well. I think it's really cool. Yeah. You can enable KYC Tornado Cash. And if you do that, you won't get arrested by... <laughs> some authority in Amsterdam and you can build KYC DeFi protocols um, all the compliant all the compliant you know DeFi protocols can be built on, on top of uh, a chain that has a, a KYC identity layer kind of Jumping back to what we talked about earlier when you said price leads everything. Curious your thoughts on Cosmos, because like if the prices are pumping and um, if someone asked me like what token do you think is not going up today, I would guess Cosmos because <laughs> it just <laughs> seems to be the case every time. What do you th but yeah. I do think app chains are cool. We have DOIDX just launched, you know, in the Cosmos. What do you think about the ecosystem? Yeah, um, this is not a strong opinion. Okay, first, Cosmos is differentiated enough from Solana and and Ethereum. And by the way, this was the same argument I made in favor of Solana, which is that Solana is differentiated enough from Ethereum. Now, Cosmos is differentiated enough from the other two big incumbents, and that's partly what makes them interesting. Cosmos's problem is I feel like uh, no one in the Cosmos community thinks of them as the as part of the Cosmos community. They think of them uh, of of the Osmosis community or whatever the Cosmos Zone community is, rather than the, the Cosmos community. So the app chain thesis of Cosmos creates that problem, the, 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 the fragmentation of community problem. Um, and, and for me, that's fairly important because, um, you know, you, you see how Ethereum or Solana devs have been so crazy about Solana in the last few months. Like, they all feel super proud of being in this community. They shill their chain to the rest of the world and you don't see that on cosmos um so th that's one downside of of cosmos um where i think cosmos can find product market fit um obviously every ecosystem needs, needs their own DeFi protocols DeFi is like the core infrastructure like especially the the the, the spot uh the spot decentralized exchanges that's, that's just part of the core infrastructure that's needed in every ecosystem, and therefore that's also needed in Cosmos. Um, I'm still a little bit skeptical about the idea of... I don't, I don't know what to make of DYDX on, on Cosmos. I guess we'll see how, how it plays out. But where I see Cosmos really have found product market fit is in those middle layer 
you know, infrastructure type of products that launch their own chain, such as Celestia, right? That, that went up a lot recently. Everyone is talking about them. Um, and uh, let's say some decentralized RPC networks like Lava um, and stuff like that, like infrastructure type of networks using Cosmos seems to be the, the, the niche that, that found product market fit. Do you think that fragmentation that Cosmos has had and that they don't, it's, it's tried to be the hub, right, in some ways, but then it was Osmosis and now you're looking around, there's some fragmentation there. Do you think that's going to happen in Ethereum at all? Or do you think Ethereum just has such a strong brand? Because when I think about L2s, like you kind of have two outcomes in general, which would maybe be you have a thousand L2s plus, you know, tens of thousands of L2s. Um, and a lot of those probably use the frameworks of the L2s that exist today plus some. Um, or you end up having maybe like two to three massive L2s that play along with this more... Uh, Solana-esque thesis that it's better to have people on a composable state, but you can still have the modular paradigm. I'm just curious, like in that world where you have all these L2s, do you have that fragmentation where it goes from, hey, we're all Ethereum aligned to like, where do I go as a developer or as an investor? Yeah. I mean, there ought to be some fragmentation, but so far what I've seen is the L2 leaders really want to align with Ethereum rather than memeing their own community into existence um and i have part part of it i feel like there is a fundamental te technology argument because like the l2s for example they need proto dang sharding <laughs> or else they're, they're they're continuing to be more ex a lot more expensive than solana for example so they need the ethereum foundation and, and the core developers um and also, like interestingly, if you look at the price action of of uh, Arb and OP and Ethereum, they're highly correlated with each other. Like they all move up together and go down together. And that's that's not the case with Solana and, and, and Bitcoin. Like in in the last two weeks, Solana and Bitcoin just move in the opposite direction from from Ethereum. Like every day, like Ethereum goes up, the other two go down. The other two go up, <laughs> Ethereum goes down. But the Ethereum layer two is all go up or down with Ethereum. Mm -hmm. So you're saying Solana and Ethereum are good bets then because they hedge each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you, you can you through the price action, you can feel in your veins some um, how the communities are organized and separated from each other. Solana is obviously separated from the Ethereum community, but within Ethereum, the layer twos they all all move together. They all roll in the same direction as, as Ethereum. Hmm. Yeah, I, I struggle with it somewhat. I know L2s, like the main thing they want out of Ethereum, I would think is liquidity and users. Like it's great to get the security of Ethereum, but really like what they want the liquidity. Um, Austin Federo was on a podcast a while ago. You know, he's from the Solano ecosystem. He's the head of strategy. Um, he talked about like, you know, Ethereum tries to make a very simple base layer and basically push the complications and the complexities up right? Because they want to be extremely neutral and as simple as possible. Um, and that kind of works today. Like you have flashbots and so forth, and everyone's working towards this um, benevolent goal of creating this ecosystem where all the value returns to token holders and you don't have all of this, whether it's front running, et cetera. But Austin kind of points out that's relatively compelling. Maybe that's the case now, but in the future, a lot of these service providers that come into crypto may not have giant bags of ETH, which today, like all the L2 builders that you have, all this infrastructure that in the interoperability layers, they all have like a giant bag of ETH. So everyone is like very aligned with that ecosystem. But in the future, that may not be the case. And that's also where you'll see this like fragmentation as well. I'll give you my, my very simple bull case and, and bear case for Ethereum versus Solana. As a developer, from the perspective of a developer, I come from a very technical background in the past. It's been five years I haven't coded, but I used to be very technical. If I'm a new developer coming into the space, I look at Ethereum, I look at Solana, I look at Ethereum and I see 10 different names, Arbitrum, Optimism, Polygon, Starknet, ZK Sync, blah, 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 blah. What the fuck am I going to do with these? Which one do I pick? The one that gives you the most money, maybe, if they have a grant, right? Yes. But my first reaction is, I'm just so confused. What do I do? What, what do I choose? Now, if I look at Solana, it's one chain. Great. And it's cheaper and faster. Why not just pick that? So that's that's the... The best argument I can I can think of as a developer for Solana. It's it's really that simple. It's it's less complex, less confusing. And the biggest argument for Ethereum is if I'm a new developer to this space, 
The other really important thing I, I look at is where else are the other developers and where else are the, the other users and where else is the TVL? And for these three things, the vast majority of them, they're on Ethereum. So me as a new developer, I want to go where most users are. I want to go where the other developers are. And I want to go where the TVL is. So that's the strongest argument for me to pick uh, Ethereum as a new developer. And I don't know which one of these two pros and cons will outweigh the other. Um, it's really hard to say. You could very, very easily make the argument that Ethereum is the JavaScript of, of blockchains. I, I, I'm not making an analogy between Solidity and JavaScript. I'm making an analogy between Ethereum and JavaScript in the sense that JavaScript was the first programming language that was adopted by Netscape two, three decades ago. And however shit of a, of a programming language it is, it's the most popular uh, web development language. And, and that is because it was simply the, the first mover. And there's so much network effect around it, so much developer network effect, and so, much, so many libraries built on top of JavaScript. And you can make the same argument on Ethereum, on Ethereum in the sense that Ethereum was the front runner and it has all these developers. Um, and that is a, a great network effect. And I'll, I'll give you another, the counter argument to the counter argument of the counter argument <laughs> to this network effect argument, which is that, well, you can argue that Ethereum is actually anti network effect because if all the other developers are on Ethereum and all the, you know, uh, they're building so many apps and all these apps are competing for a block space, well, that means my app will get too expensive. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, the other interesting part of this, uh, another analogy that probably doesn't truly apply that I'll try to is, um, you know, you had Android and Palm Pilot were like two of the, I don't know if they even called smartphones at the time, but like leading smartphones. And like, I was too young for this, but like if you were at a corporation, you had to use one of those phones um, specifically for security and they only really trusted those phones. And then Apple came out with a completely different product with like a touchscreen, right? But the big thing is they started with consumers and if you were at a corporation, you actually still had to carry around your like BlackBerry or Palm Pilot because they didn't trust Apple yet, but it had such great consumer adoption that at some point they just, one, the phone got better and more secure, but two, they were like, we have to use this at work because all of our employees are using it. And then now if you're at work, you can just use an iPhone. And like, I'm trying to make an analogy to Solana here. Like if you win the consumers over, not just the whales that are on Ethereum, which AKA are like the corporations, then maybe eventually you actually have this change in paradigm, even though Ethereum was first. Yep. It's just a just Agreed. A we'll see how things play out. Okay, before we close up, I'll let you go here in just a second. Um, I want, you just wrote an essay today, actually, that I think... You, you had a few essays I read today. So let's see what the name of this one was. Um, what was it? The single most important... No, what was it? Was it... Oh, what does it take to be a good crypto crypto founder? Um, people should just go read that piece. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's only going to take you about 10 minutes. But I just want to know maybe your biggest takeaway from that piece and why you put that out today. Yeah. I, uh, I, I put out um, three or four qualities of a, a great crypto founder, and they're not surprising. Um, but the one that's that might surprise most people is uh, I found that in crypto, founders coming from a an elite background, meaning they went to an elite school or an elite tech company, do not have an unfair advantage compared to those who come from a relatively more unprivileged background. And there are several reasons for that. And, and all these reasons could surprise you. Um, the, the first surprising reason is uh, most founders who come from a, a very elite background, they, they grow up being taught that if you are not growing at 5% week on week, you are failing. Your startup is failing. And counterintuitively, in crypto, 5% week on week growth never happens. And that is because the broader crypto market is so cyclical. So most, most products in crypto actually grow in a very staircase fashion. So they, they, grow for, they grow a lot for several months or years, and then they go flat or even down for one or two years, which by the way is happening now in this bear market. 
and the next bull market, they're going to grow again. So extremely staircase. And a lot, a lot of founders who, who come from the, the elite Silicon Valley background, they are very prone to giving up in the bear market. This just happens over and over again. I don't, they, they, maybe they have too many options. Maybe they can do AI. Maybe they can go back to a huge you know, robotics company or whatever and, and make like $5 million a year. Whatever, whatever the reason is, they have too many options and they gave up too quickly in the bear market. Um, whereas the unprivileged founders, they don't do that. They don't have options. And um, they are uh, okay to, to grind through the, the, the bear market and, and um, eat the pain of, of not growing uh, for two years. So that's the first really, unsurpri uh, really surprising reason. Um, and the second surprising reason is that um, again, going back to the chain analysis report that I mentioned earlier, um, four of the top five countries in the uh, when it comes to crypto adoption in the world, um, they are not developed countries. That's not surprising, to be honest. Like you would you would expect crypto to really take off in emerging markets. But the data shows that, that the data from chain analysis does prove that. Four of the top five countries are emerging markets. And if you think about the, the real world use cases of crypto, remittance, payment, whatever, um, they have to be built by people, founders, who are on the ground, possibly grew up in that region of the world because those are the people who truly understand your, their users. Their users are the unprivileged people who really need crypto. And the best type of founders who understand these users deeply, for me, tend to be people who come from a similar background. And so we see so many great founders around the world that are not US-based, not Western Europe-based, that are based in Latin America, Africa, Eastern European, Southeast Asia, that are going, doing really good things for, for users in their local country. And I, I, say this, I say this is surprising because you and I, and probably most of your audience, um, get most of our information from crypto Twitter. Crypto Twitter is extremely US-centric. And you just don't see things that happen in the rest of the world. The only reason why I see those things is because I receive those applications to Alliance Out. And I talk to them and I learn about these things. And a lot of things that I learn are not in the data. So this is the second reason why people with a unprivileged background coming from the de developing countries around the world uh, do really well in crypto. Those are great. Seriously, you're such a good person to interview. <laughs> I can see why your schedule is packed with people wanting to interview you. Um, I've got, I probably shouldn't even throw this out there, but I've got one thing to add that maybe is a reason why some people that, you know, don't come from the top universities, et cetera, are people that actually end up being really good founders is potentially the sense that crypto got really hot for a while, right? And everyone pivoted to crypto. Everyone was putting a friend group. Um, but it's, Often the people that maybe are not worried about what other people think and like being a nonconformist are the ones that will stick around because crypto got really uncool really quickly. Um, and if you have a background where you're like always the top of your class, you always go to the best school, et cetera, how people perceive you probably becomes a big part of your identity. And I promise like talking to people and you know this about that you're still in crypto after crypto collapse was not cool, you know, and that'd be really hard as a founder if you care about those things a lot. That's a generalization. So obviously, there's a lot of people that went to every single school that you know don't think that way. But I think that could be also a factor. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and this ties back to to a comment that I made earlier about uh, why speculation is such a contrarian idea among VCs, but such a consensus idea among users. I almost feel like VCs are too embarrassed to talk about speculation. They think it's not cool. But the users don't give a shit about whether or not it's cool. Users just want to make money by aping into Harry Potter, Obama Sonic. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. that's really what they wanted to do. And, 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 and the founders who come from a non-elite, unprivileged background, 
they actually understand this because they grew up in that kind of family. They grew up in a in a in a in an environment where they have to think all day about how to make get an extra edge here and there and make an extra few bucks to I don't know put food on the table or something like that. And so that's why I think um, empirically, this is not what I think. Empirically, I do see founders coming from those backgrounds do really well. I'm not saying that the, the founders coming from an elite background don't do well. I'm just saying among the, the founders who do really well, neither has an unfair advantage against the other. Yeah. Yeah, the correlation zero. And um, VCs, when talking about speculation, they can't say thinking from burst principles or disruption or how this is, you know, world changing. So I agree. Like, there's probably an embarrassment there. Um, anyways, Xiao, thanks so much for coming on. This is really, really fun. Uh, you mentioned your podcast once or twice, which is called Good Game. Which you do it with Imran, who's your co-founder. Um, it is an excellent podcast. I think you guys put out a podcast maybe like once a month or twice a month. Is that right? Yeah, once a month. Yeah, ballpark. Yeah, sweet. So everybody check that out. I'll put links in the show notes. Um, this is a very fun conversation. So thanks again for jumping on. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we'll see you next time. All right, I've got a little ending note here. First, thank you so much for listening to the full episode. If you really liked it, hit subscribe. But secondly, make sure you sign up for DAS. This is BlockWorks' biggest institutional conference happening in London in March. I've included a link in the show notes and also a discount code. Get 20% off. Make sure to use Lightspeed20 when you sign up. All right, I'll see you there. And I'll see you next time on Lightspeed. 